It's a kitchen that smells like a kitchen. You walk in, there's stocks going. There's pastry, they're doing their things, it smells like sugar and butter. Like, it smells like what you want a kitchen to smell like, whereas a lot of kitchens, none of it, they have no smell. Or yeah. they're sanitary, or they smell yeah. like bad fish. Yeah, so that was a really awesome place. I will always remember just like watching the guy in Gondolier just go down on oysters. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm Editor-in-Chief Matt Rodbard, here with Senior Editor Anna Hiesel. On today's show, we have Akira Akuto of LA's Conebe. You have probably seen their egg sandwich on Instagram at some point. Later, we'll be talking to taste contributor Max Felkowitz about sea urchin. But first, Matt, what did you and Akira talk about? Yes, Anna, we talk about the sandwich. But guess what? There is much more to this story than a fucking sandwich. They're doing a lot of other cool things at Conebe, and great pastries, too. Oh, for sure. But let's talk about Akira first. Akira is an interesting cat. He went to Columbia University, uh, graduated, but then he was like, I don't want to be a blah, blah, blah business guy, blah, blah, blah. He ended up working at Momofuku and Franny's on the line, and then eventually moved to Los Angeles where he opened Combi. And then he became famous for making egg sandwiches. (laughs) Back to the sandwich. He also makes actually an eggplant katsu which is not an egg sandwich, and it's pretty delicious. But I love this conversation because we talk about opening a restaurant in L.A. and what it takes to open a high-concept restaurant. Akira does a cool job of opening the books and talks about things like investors and real estate and what it takes to actually make money. It's really revealing, and you should listen to it because you probably won't want to open a restaurant after you're listening to it. Here's Matt talking to Akira. Akira Kudo, welcome to the Taste Podcast. How are you, Matt? I'm great. We're in LA. How about it's, that? It's raining this week. It's really weird. One of those weird weeks. It's great. It's great for us East Coasters to experience the rain. Okay, so Combi is your restaurant, and just like let's talk about the egg sandwich. Dude, that is everywhere on Instagram. What's up with that? I don't know. It's it's Do uh, you know? It's not the one that we thought would be popular. It's it's the one that we thought would be the throwaway. So we are very <laughs> wrong. Explain what it is first. What is the uh, egg sandwich? It's, it's an egg salad sandwich. Basically, um, you just take some hard-boiled eggs. You mix it with this dressing that we have made. Uh, you, you fold it together. And then we have a soft-boiled egg that uh, goes in the middle of that. So it's basically one uh, soft-boiled egg cut in half goes in the middle of that. But. This is a tribute or um, an homage to the Japanese convenience store egg sandwich that you would find at Lawson's or 7-Eleven. Is that correct? This one is specific to the Lawson's. Okay. Yeah, we saw it last last trip, and uh, it was awesome. So we thought we would do something that's similar to that. So tell me... Um, what what are people like? Where 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 is it being like written about, and like why why has it gone viral? I mean, I'm just gonna say it. it's gone, dude. It's gone viral. It's gone viral. Uh, I I don't know. I um I think Instagram it, it's visually appealing. I guess yeah. it's I don't think it's anything different. Like it it's an egg salad sandwich. At the end of the day, if you bite into it blindfolded, it tastes like an egg salad sandwich. <laughs> um. It's seasoned well. Yeah. I think it, it, I mean, we put a lot of thought into it. Sure. Not when we initially put it on the menu, we just thought, hey, we need something that's going to relieve the hot sandwiches. It's just, it was just me and Nick. So yeah. we, I was concerned about logistics of service. 
and uh, mm-hmm. we'd cooked long enough where we didn't want to be stupid. So we tried to prepare <laughs> for what could happen if yeah. we were busy. And we so just like thought, scoop and put on scoop. Bread. And we thought, okay, yeah. we'll have it like ready, already made. Yeah. Like, and all we have to do is slice it. So it's, yeah. it'll okay. really alleviate all the problems. But we found trying to do that, the bread dries out a little. So we can't really actually do that. We tried several different ways to just even have it like ready to mm-hmm. just slice and it wouldn't work. So we, we now we make them to order and it's, it's even more pain in the ass. But What's the mayonnaise component in this? It's Koopy. It's the... Heard of it? Heard of it. Subscribe to it. Very, very a, delicious Japanese mayonnaise. Great uh, graphic design. Like really good graphic design. Yeah. There's nothing more than... <laughs> You know, it's it's basically a umami bomb. So it's not like a Hellman's. It's not a Duke's. It doesn't have that lemony flavor. It has a slightly. So what? Explain what Koopy is. Koopy. Koopy is just a uh, Japanese mayo. It's a slightly sweeter, um, and it has MSG in it. So yeah, a fuckload, which is awesome. Yeah, it's delicious. And it's a delicious mayonnaise. Uh, it's funny. We just talked a lot about one sandwich, but clearly Kombi is more than just a one sandwich shop. You describe it as a Japanese sandwich shop that makes French pastries and vegetable dishes. So what is the connection between all of this? Japanese sandwiches, French pastries, and vegetable dishes? Um, I would say the, the, the French pastries and the Japanese sandwiches go together. Um, you'll see a lot of French pastries in, in Tokyo and all around Japan. Um, found that like the Japanese really appreciate French food. And a lot of them have uh, worked in France as sous chefs at very high-end restaurants or baked at very high-end patisseries and then come back and just kind of taken that to another level. Uh, a lot of the French food there is, is, is on par with the stuff you'll find over in France. Let's talk about that a little bit. You travel to Japan, Japan often. And I try to go uh, as much as and possible. And your family's from Japan? Yeah, my dad's side is from Japan. So I grew up there till we were about uh, five and a half, six. Then we moved to the States uh, for my dad's work. And then I grew up in Connecticut. So, But uh, the bakery is there. Let's, uh, it's like the Shokunin, they call it, right? The the single topic restaurants? Yeah. Or, or... Uh, p- people in, in Japan especially will just devote their whole life to one thing. So it could be baking, mm-hmm. not even like French pastry. It'll be like, yeah. I just make cannelé. That's yeah. all I do. And you're <laughs> like, that's crazy. But I can see why this is perfect. Um, and then, you know, when you go eat there, like the restaurants are smaller, so you, yeah. you can figure out how to do something at that level for six to eight, 10 people. It makes sense. If you're trying to do a restaurant for a hundred people, it's, it's impossible. So, so I, I, I asked that question because when you were launching Combi, your cannelly game on Instagram was pretty crazy. I think you were, I, I was out here with you when you were testing, you tested for a year, probably. Oh, right? I tested for months for many months um secretly yeah so i didn't want to embarrass myself <laughs> there were some really ugly ones yeah. yeah um i got a lot of help from friends who who've made a lot of cannelays for for you know famous people who had a lot of tips and help um but it, it was mostly like if anyone wants to make cannelay because it's on trend now uh you just have to suffer <laughs> a lot at your house and um and then when you Move the recipe to the restaurant, it's completely different with a, with an oven. That's totally different. So, What makes a really great cannelé? I think you have to have the, the crispy crust, obviously, but not burned. So there's a fine line between caramelized and then burned. So that's tricky. 
and then you want the interior to be custard-like, but not mushy. You want it to have structure still. So it's like you cut the it cantaloupe filling is its own thing. Like totally. it's hard to describe. You and like rub. they should, you shouldn't have yeah. both together, but no. you can achieve it, and it's awesome. And that shape too. The shape, yeah, the shape. You gotta, you gotta just get the expensive mold from France. Yeah, the copper mold. You, you yeah. just gotta do it. If you're gonna do it, just buy the expensive molds. Yeah. Don't do silicone. And you, there's other, there's other stuff that um, you can go into, but you have to rest the batter for 48 hours or more. That's and, the that's the key. Yeah. Okay. There's the new issue of toothache goes into a huge detailed um, research and kind of like um, all the different methods. Yo, toothache. Yeah. Yeah, hit me to that. I don't know Toothache. Toothache's a magazine that um, the old pastry chef from Qua, yeah. Matthew Tinder, cool. he has a bakery up in near Seattle. So he launched this magazine, basically profiles uh, pastries and then other things. Um, but in the latest issue, they have a whole spread on Canada. And Shout out to that, that new magazine that I don't know about. I feel yeah. like I... You should get it. It's good. I'm going to order it. Yeah. Akira, how did you start your journey in cooking? Like, how did you get into this game? I was in um, college in New York, and like uh, culinary school. No, I went to a real college. You went to a u- real university, a four-year university. To, yeah, I went to university. Was there an athletic team? They had a team. Okay. They're not good at anything but okay. archery and fencing. Okay, and, and rowing. It's a very preppy Is this place. Columbia or NYU? It's Columbia. Columbia. I I just didn't really understand what I wanted to do at school. I didn't really understand like you got to spend two years focusing on a topic, and I, I wasn't very good at that. So. I found myself eating out a lot at restaurants and cooking was starting very starting, like early, early on starting to look cool. It was, it's definitely not cool. What year are we talking about? Give us, give us a little context. 2002, three. We're like Babo. Early. It's like Bob. Yeah, Babo's yeah, the yeah. shit. He definitely. did, he did come Bob, out. Yo. Yeah. Bourdain. It was early. Yeah. I went to a, a lot of, uh, good restaurants. Um, and uh, I, I got the impression that I wanted to be able to eat well. Not cook, just like be able to eat well. Um, and cooking looked like a good way to like impress someone. So somehow I convinced myself that if I went to cooking school on the weekends and I went down the investment banking path, I, I'd be able to cook for people and impress them. Investment yeah. banker, but I really didn't like investment banking, so that was a terrible summer, and uh, I didn't do anything with cooking for a while. Um, and then I moved to California after to like my parents had moved out here, so I hung out with them, and um, I, they were just like, "You need to do something. Like you can't just sit at the house." So let's let's go back to the um, the moment you're you're dining out as a as a college kid um with with like the focus of eating good food where were you going I and mean, where were some of the places that you that were inspired you back in 020304 uh i i remember we went to Liberton once for uh, a friend got a really great job at microsoft so we celebrated there <laughs> but that was like the first really nice meal otherwise it was still like going to um like good bagel shops figuring out what was good like we had absolute bagels up there it was very good um and like lots of pizza just like eating all around the pizza um and then like the upper west side there wasn't really anything great hey still that way 
Still that way. Barney Green, Barney Green Grass was good. Like all those places were still yeah. solid, but okay, nothing yeah. was like. Shout out to Barney Green Grass. Yeah. Sure. Nothing was really great. Um, but I went to Lupa a lot. Um, just kind of eating simple pasta dishes. Yeah. Lupa kind of was a game changer for pasta in New York. I yeah. feel like. And that was, was Mark Ladner there at the time? He was at the yeah. time. Mark Ladner, you know, of Del Posto. Uh, he's a genius. Now a pasta flyer, truly one of America's great pasta cooks. Oh, I mean, he's, he's the best. I think he knows so much about Italian food in general and uh, the way Lupa ran. And if you see the kitchen, is it doesn't make any sense how they can put out the amount of food they do out of that. Um, but that was, that was one of the, the most consistent kind of great meals I would have that was at the time affordable and i went to gramercy tavern a few times with my parents um just like to celebrate and the hospitality was just eye-opening i'd never seen anything like gramercy tavern in the fall and winter and it really just like stuck in my mind as like Mm -hmm. this is the type of restaurant that i associate with new york like festive really warm it's good for going with your parents, going on a date. Like it just covers all the bases, and they just handle it. A real celebration. Yeah, they just yeah. Ha- they anticipate your needs. They somehow magically hear and think through like what you you might order, but you don't order, and then it just shows up. Like you don't have to be in the industry; they still take care of you. And it was wild to see like. There's free stuff coming to you. You don't work in restaurants. Now you see it like after working in the industry, like that's normal for like people who work in restaurants. But to do that to people who are just normal people, it's it's really remarkable that they can sustain a business and create something that works. So you decided at some point after this terrible summer in iBanking that you wanted to do this for your career. What did your parents say? When you said you wanted to be a chef? My parents, no, they, they were definitely not into it. I mean, I spent two years in a bio pre-med. So they were just like, this is not the path that you're supposed to be doing. Uh, and my friends from high school are very intelligent human beings and, and very successful. They just didn't, didn't understand what I was doing. Um, and I didn't know anyone who cooked. So it was, it was a really odd uh, choice. So they, they didn't, they couldn't wrap their head around it. And this was like definitely before like the celebrity chef. Yeah. Like no, Bourdain I mean, had they're been just, around. They're, 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 their issues were one, they're Asian. So that's, it's not, a, it's not a respectable career. And two, uh, they just didn't think you'd have any family time. You're not going to make any money. You're going to be working all the time. You're, you're never going to be able to have a, a, you know, a home life and, I mean, I think they were right on that point, but uh, I didn't really care. I, yeah. I didn't listen. I don't listen to them yeah. about anything, so it was fine. Yeah. But part of the course. So where yeah. did you end up? Uh, so where did you end up going to school? Where did you end up studying and, and doing your externship, et cetera, et cetera? I went to the Institute of Culinary Education. I think it, shout it, out Ice. It used to be called Peter Kumps. Oh yeah, yeah. right. And now it's Ice, school. and now Ice has expanded. They bought Natural Gourmet Institute recently, so they like they are really really growing. Um, and I did my externship at Kraft in 2003. Mm. Yeah. David Chang, was he working there? No, he was before. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but Tom Colicchio, obviously. He was not even there. Oh, no shit. He was gone. Damon, Damon was. Damon Weiss. Damon okay. was, 
around. Damon White? He was not even, he was the executive sous chef. Okay. Yeah, it was another guy, I can't remember his name, who had been around for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, and a really solid crew. Um, and it was like, uh, it's a kitchen that smells like a kitchen. You walk in, there's stocks going. There's pastry. They're doing their things. So it smells like sugar and butter. Like it smells like what you want a kitchen to smell like. Whereas a lot of kitchens, no, they have no smell or yeah, they're sanitary or they smell yeah. like bad fish. Yeah. So that was a really awesome place. I will always remember just like watching uh, the guy in Garmanger just go down on oysters yeah. every night. And then like my task was um, cutting stuff for the for the sauces it was just like oh you're gonna cut a quart of red onion like what's in a small dice small dice but like only the outer two layers and then like same with the carrots same with the celery it would take me hours and like the other people would be like you should be able to do this in like 15 minutes and also do this i was like i don't i don't understand like i can never do that like I, it's taking me two hours to do these three things. How do you get to that point? And, and you know, it's, 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 it's a lot of work that goes into running that type of restaurant. And, uh, I think when you're in cooking school, you're, you, you get like an inflated idea of what you're able to accomplish. Or you go to some places with less caliber. I mean, craft totally. time is like like that's a four the three mission that's a three sorry new york time star restaurant totally but you know if you at the time if if you don't go to that type of restaurant you just i don't think you can acquire the skills you need early on in your life to to go down that path of like i started late like i started going at 24 so comparing that to like a 14 to 18 year old who can absorb information at like a rapid rate it was already late, so I needed to acquire as much information as I could. So let's do like the Scorsese montage moment of the interview and like take us through like the cut, the cut, the cut to where you were working because you worked in some cool places in New York. I worked in some cool places. I actually didn't work in a lot of places for like the length of time you're supposed to work. I, I'm like pretty, pretty notoriously bad. So <laughs> I, I have ADD with that yeah. stuff. And yeah. I was like, I'm late. I need to acquire as much skills as I can. And I can't be here for a year. So, oh, you, so you places, jumped around a bit. Is I jumped saying. around yeah. a bit. Most of the places I worked uh, are like six to 11 months. Like, yeah. Where do you work? Tell- but I worked for uh, Zach Palaccio at five ninth when that was like a pirate ship <laughs> and it was crazy. Uh, and then I moved to Franny's in, in uh, 05 to 06. That was really, really awesome point in career for what Franny's was doing. Andrew was still cooking. And it was just, they had already gotten rid of pasta. So it was just focusing on, and pizza and salads and desserts, but like just pentecost. We'll talk about combi more. And definitely it seems like it, it was informed combi. I think Franny's really made an impression on, in my whole life, just like, uh, how, how you approach cooking. I'd always loved Italian culture and food, but, uh, it, it was so clean for a pizza shop, like you, you would do, you have to change your apron if you got a spot on it and like you're making salads to order and, and your stuff just, uh, your plus gets thrown away at the end of the night. Like you're just doing everything, uh, just for the day. You're breaking down your entire station to wipe it down. It's like, this is not a pizza shop. There's nothing casual about this place, but it looks casual. Everything about it looks casual. Uh, and then, you know, you're sitting down for family meal for an hour. Like, you know, he's really important to think through like what that 
meant at the time, which is like, you just like craft, you're like, you're just trying to eat, trying to eat while standing up. Like, that's what I know. Uh, and then he's like, you need to take an hour to think through what service is going to be like. Who's he? Like, give me a shot. Andrew Feinberg was yeah. the owner and the chef and, and very, very OCD. Like he'd come in before you and just mark everywhere that you miss a spot cleaning with, a, with a post-it note. And you're like, how early, how early did you come in here? Like, you know, there's only four of us. Like, I don't get it. Like, uh, so it really, really taught me like about how, how to take things so seriously and, I, I just can never work like that. Uh, so you end up um, in LA with uh, with Nick, your partner. I yeah. Wanna, I want to get to the, what you were doing. You you guys are running a restaurant downtown or Arts District. What do you? We oh so yeah like you you have a history Nick in Nick and LA. I met in New York right. cooking together. He was at Mofuku Sambar, which I know is one of your favorite places. We've talked about this. <laughs> Uh, it's it's known it's known that Matt likes sambar. Yeah, I do like it's sambar. It's not shade. It's it was, delicious. It was on my best of list in two thousand nine for Eater. Or it's delicious. I, went, I, looked back I love it. sambar. Yeah, I, I liked a, eating there. I am a sambar stand. Yeah, yeah I was working at uh, Original Noodle Bar, and uh, we we hit it off. He was a young young kid, but super talented, um, and and just really fast. Uh, and he'd been cooking since he was fourteen, so. He's well ahead of me. Uh, we went our separate ways for a while. He went to Chicago. I just traveled around. And then we he ended up in L.A. Uh, like four years ago or five years ago. And just kind of was about to just help out with this restaurant. The old friend from New York. He kind of just reached out and said, hey, would you come help me out? Like, So I ended up out here. Uh, we were working on this restaurant called Oso. Um, it, it didn't really work out. Well, uh, you got some cool press. We got some I'll good say, reviews. I'll say, like Besha Rodell, former critic of LA Weekly, like wrote some really nice things about what you're she doing was there. Very kind. And to she's us. a talent spotter. I love Besha's yeah. taste. So, I I knew you through mutual friends, but I I read about your cooking and I was like, this is interesting stuff. So we were doing some. Uh, I think it was very tasty food. Yeah, just man. no one was coming. So I mean, I mean, it was in a weird neighborhood. It was still a weird neighborhood. Now it's a Moroccan lounge, so it's like a, it's becoming a famous music venue. But it, it should have been a music venue. It had a stage in the dining room. So yeah, I remember it, hearing. It was that. fighting a lot of battles, but we got to play around with food that we thought tasted good. We got to know the local LA kind of like food scene. What works, what doesn't work kind of didn't just come in and tell people what to do it just kind of like took it slow um then we started doing pop-ups and uh they were well received and then eventually we started looking for spaces and for raising Gumby. money we ended up being Gumby. so yeah. tell me about the difference that you're kind of getting into this like the difference between new york and la there's clearly a difference like you're 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 landing uh, on some things here i think i mean the main difference is just the way people um, go about their day. I look at LA as a, a giant suburb, a really cool suburb, like a suburb. I grew up in a suburb of Connecticut, but we didn't have cool food. But like LA has awesome food. It's just spread out and you have to drive everywhere. New York, you could go your whole life and never drive a car. And that dictates how you approach your whole day. Like you could go the whole day without walking here, except to your car, you know, like that's, com 
completely weird to me. Yeah. Um, it's also very unhealthy. Very unhealthy. Jeez. Like you have to drive to the gym or you have to drive to the hill to hike. Yeah. And like that concept to yeah. people who live in New York is very foreign. Yeah. And people who move here eventually come to love it. You're like, oh, I'm going to go for a hike today. I mean, like That's just walking up a hill. <laughs> but you have to do it because you're just driving around all the time. Um, so I think that those are, those are huge differences that come into play when you talk about why certain restaurants work here and certain types of food work here. Um, what about like the, just the multicultural element of LA? I mean, LA is one of the most multicultural cities and there's like, um, Latino culture is like informs the food here so much. I mean, is it something, um, you know, New York is obviously diverse as well, but here it's like much more like ingrained. Yeah, I, I think it's just not, you don't have to seek it out. You yeah. know, like New York, you have to go to, like, I want that type of Korean food. You got to go out to Flushing or you got to go out to Jackson Heights for this. You know, it's like, it's not far, but you still have to make the trek. Whereas here, it's like, you don't have to go far to get certain things. Like, that kind of stuff is just always around. And you need to understand, like, there is a, a value proposition that comes into play a lot more here when people go out to eat. Like, they're, they're just not wanting a fine dining restaurant that does not work here so you can't just open a restaurant that charges a certain price point it, you will get run out of town unless you're a special special chef uh and most people aren't and if you think you are mm, then mm. it's very silly to open in la you should mm. try to open in new york where that can be supported mm -hmm. uh there's no eye banking and bonus culture and and you know consultant culture and and people with just billions of dollars rolling around like you could do that on the West side and be fine. But for the most part, you need to open a restaurant that provides um, somewhat of a value and is good food and you still get treated well and, and it's and is open. The hours are also very different. And here. you, let's talk about that with Combi. You, you're mostly an all day cafe. Yeah. You're not we, a nighttime we, destination. We, we are coming from New York. So for us, it's yeah. like we're used to working till three, four in the morning and then going out. So we we're older now. So we wanted to avoid that lifestyle. So we made it a point to open a breakfast lunch place. And, we, and it wasn't like we wanted to open in LA. It wasn't like, oh, we have to open in LA. It's just if you think through what you think is important in your life. I want to work life balance. I want to have a breakfast, lunch, dinner, so I can just have a life at night without having to go out to a bar or go out to another restaurant. Uh, LA made the most sense. It, like squirrels here. There's other daytime places that people have successful businesses on. Uh, I can't think of any in New York that you're like, Oh, that place sounds awesome. They sound like they're profitable and they're just doing breakfast, lunch. Like, no, it doesn't work at all. And I think here, it seems like the dinner service in LA is like such a compressed, like 90 minute window. Mm -hmm. Is that, that's my perception. It's like one there's traffic dictates a lot of things here. So you need to expect your main crowd to be between six thirty seven to nine o'clock. Yeah. You can pretty much walk in any restaurant after nine o'clock, which is really weird. You're doing to think one about. turn for dinner, yeah. basically. You can right? get the five thirty to seven, yeah. like local crowd. Um, Bestia gets at five thirty, eleven thirty, but they are anomaly. There's, that's not a normal thing. Um, but you're relying on you. You can't rely on the three turns business models. So you're trying to get as much business. For, before nine o'clock as possible. And, uh, that's just a lot of pressure, a lot of pressure to put on yourself when you have like a staff for dinner service and you prep totally. for dinner and you only have that 90 minute, two hour. Window. And like for, yeah. for me and Nick, like 
we just never owned a restaurant before for us to assume that we're going to be able to draw that crowd was like very silly. So we're like, we'd rather take a much lower risk echo park spot. That's small. We can do breakfast, lunch. If it fails, we'll turn it into whatever like we need to, to pay our investors back. Like it was our pitch was like, Hey, like this might not work, but we will not lose your money. We'll turn it into a fried chicken shop if we have to, or a yogurt shop or whatever is going to work and make money. <laughs> We're going to do uh, a 16 handles concept whatever no we shit. had to do like we will do to to pay our investors back we don't want to do that but company's working like let's be real like i mean we talked about press but you're you're doing like business like you're on yes, we, we're doing well we we've made money since day one we've that's designed awesome. it that's great so that our staff is paid very well mm-hmm. and that comes from we had the freedom to design a raw space if you go into an existing space that's already laid out for you it's much more difficult. We got fortunate. Our uh, good friends from Civil Coffee passed on a space. They told us to look at it. So we looked at it. We demolished it. It was a barbershop. And we built it from the ground up. And we we really thought through for a year or more, how can we design it with the laws are in place? Because 20% service charge doesn't seem to be working. If you can only tip, then back of the house, front of the house, you're still going to run into that same tension forever. And if you design a space... And then try to retroactively fix that problem, you're screwed. So we thought, okay, well, there's a loophole where if you're involved in service, you can get tipped out. So let's design a space where everyone's involved. Everyone is involved in service. Yeah, it has to be small. Uh, And then how do we get that to work? Um, And then how do we make the business work? So we we were like, all right, we want a window anyway. Hopefully there's enough business coming out of the window because it's basically an infinite seat restaurant. Um, and and that's kind of what we thought through for a while. And then that's what Comey became. And then it became an egg salad sandwich restaurant. Yeah, then now it's basically. an egg salad sandwich restaurant with, with <laughs> croissants. But No, that's uh, right. And and let me ask you, um, where do you take this brand, Combi? It seems like you've got, a, to, uh, you, you've got brand equity. You've got this really cool, buzzy thing happening. Do you want to, to open more? Is that your goal? Uh, that is our goal. Cool. Um, we 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 want to be smart about how we expand. We're not, we're not you know we have offers to do stuff already, but we just say no. We're very good at saying no, and we have uh, very uh, LA of you. Very LA. It's not because we're cool. It's just no, like I we know. have um, we have very good uh, investors who aren't concerned about making their money back on this project. They know if we can slowly grow, they'll make their money back at some point on a much bigger thing. So they're willing to invest time in us and our operating agreement structure so they don't have say. So we can make those decisions. They're trusting us to make smart business decisions, but we can, they're not in food. None of them are in food. So we can go to them and ask them business questions. And it's very helpful. Oh, that's right. So they they actually have a fresh set of eyes in the business. Yeah, they're in much bigger businesses and they can offer us uh, answers to business questions. And if they don't know, they can ask someone else. So we, we're fortunate in that sense. And, and they're never pressuring us to, oh, you need to build 50 of these. Like, if this one works and you're paying us back, fine. If you can grow it into a bigger 50 chain or 100 chain, cool. But don't burn it out quickly and then mm-hmm. the whole thing crumbles. Mm-hmm. Build it out slowly. Uh, and you like that approach? Is that working I, for you? I've worked at companies that have grown slowly. And I've seen the lessons of what works i've looked at chipotle and all those businesses that they work for a time and it's just like 
there's certain things that need to happen for a business to really grow huge. And you, you can't expect it to happen before 10 years. Like it has to be this like, well, look at Momo at least 10 years. Momo like Momo is at 10 years now, 10 years. I, I think, um, what Dave did was smart. Um, you know, I, I think what Mike Solomonoff does is very intelligent. It's just a, building up enough talent to be able to expand and have an opening team that you rely on instead of like, oh, yeah, we're, someone gave us $20 million. Let's just open 25 of these. Like, that's going to fail. I mean, that's, that's going to, people are going to knock on your door for that because of just the press and profile you guys have. I hope so. I mean, I love money, but yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, I don't know how to grow the business yeah. at that rate yet. So we will have to figure all that out in in time, yeah. and we have advisors who are very good at that, so we can rely on them. But I know that you need to figure out uh, a commissary model, and then you need to figure out the supply chain, and then you need to like figure out real estate. And a lot of the successful people in in restaurants are are real estate deals. They're just mm-hmm. like the real estate makes sense, the lease makes sense. And that kind of stuff you don't learn when you're cooking. So that was a lot of the stuff we learned in the last two, three years. It's just yeah. like figuring out like how to approach a lease. Like, and that's like a lot of our friends are asking us questions about that now. Who that's cool that you're sharing that. And we're open book about it. It's, it. I think we want other talented chefs to open restaurants that are awesome so we can eat at them. But we try to give them honest advice about how to approach that. Not don't think about the food. Don't think about what you want to make as a dish. Cause that could change in two years by the time you're built out. Like that could be completely different. Think about, does this lease make sense? Does the investors you're taking on, do they make sense? Are they going to pressure you to use things you don't want to do? Uh, is the neighborhood feel right? Like all of the other things that go into building a small company, uh, we try to talk to people about. You mentioned um, your peers in the industry here. Like, you know, you're part of this L.A. restaurant community. I just let's shout out some of your your favorites right now. Where are you going on these off this days? Dangerous. I know. Territory, Matt. I, well, there's anything involved. You're one, gonna, I haven't really had a lot of time lately. Well, we're going to edit a lot of names you're going to say down to a few. So okay. just know that I there's going to be like a yeah. hundred names out. We're just going to get Yeah. I mean, I, I don't really know that many people, but okay. Yeah. Right. I, um, you, you know, like every journalist in LA though, right. <laughs> you know, I, okay. I went out to lunch a couple of days ago actually. And I had an awesome lunch at my buddy Ari's, uh, wine bar, Hayden, it's seafood focused wine bar in Culver city. Um, it's gone through like couple changes. It started off as a much bigger space. It's a lot more intimate now and a lot more focused. And I, I think this was the the best meal I've had there in, in ever. And just like it's much more intimate cafe feel. And he's sourcing properly and and just cooking really tasty food. And if you drink wine, then and um it's got a really great list. Uh I don't drink wine, but uh the the food I had was really awesome. I took one of the cooks uh, with me, and, and he was really, really into it. Uh, and then I went to Wax Paper after that, and their new location in Chinatown is, is really weird and quirky. What do they do? Uh, they're a sandwich shop. I don't know how to describe what kind of sandwiches they, they make, but they name all their sandwiches after NPR hosts. I think it's cool. Uh, their original locations in Frogtown, and I love Lauren and Peter. They're they're the sweetest. They're big podcast fans. I'm just gonna. They say. are bo- podcast fans. Uh, Lauren went to uh, to high school with a good friend of mine, Stephanie Prita. So that like it's a small small world, 
and uh, I think they're doing really cool stuff. Uh, the new location is is really weird, and you should go. Uh, they have specials at each one, so you know they figured that out. Uh, I went to Simone the other night. Um, Jess Largie's a friend, and I think she's very talented on another level. I don't, I can never cook as good as Jessica, and she's very kind to us. She lets us use her space when we have pop ups, so I, I have to say thank you. She lives across the street from Comby, so I see her every day. Uh, she loves croissants. Um, and those are what, like restaurants that I, yeah, yeah we, I mean, but you did, you mentioned about a hundred more and we just had to edit them out. Yeah. Edit, edit them out, edit them out. Yeah. But otherwise, you know, K town, like SGV, all those places yeah, yeah, yeah. are, you could Google and spend the rest of your life just eating yeah, that food. And it's the best. Yeah, SGV food. is like the mothership. For yeah. It. Oh, uh, hail Mary has been really good lately. I think the pizza that he's doing is, is phenomenal. Um, the dough is super flavorful and the salads are just, it's great. I ate there with miles like before he left for Europe and we had a really, really great meal. Cool. We ask all of our guests for our last question, Akira, what is your dream cookbook project that you want to, that you want to do at some point in your life? I don't want to do a cookbook. You have like 600 I, I, of them. in Yes. Your they're, they're here. You have a shelf of 600 there's, in your house. We're in your there's house. There's probably 400 Italian cookbooks and okay, all of like, my friends. Have cookbooks. That answer doesn't cut it. All right, okay. So let's just say, I'm going to try to skirt the question, but if you're going to make me, answer, I'm going to make you say something like you love cookbooks. Katie Parla is doing this cookbook right now. Southern Italian. That would be my dream cookbook, but she's already doing it. So <laughs> I will say maybe, uh, I don't know. I have no idea. Like, I think Japan's got like maybe a few other books in in that amazing, wonderful. Huge sure, I mean, Japan is endless, endless source of inspiration and mastery of cooking that you could probably write a cookbook on. I don't want to write that cookbook, but I would be involved in that cookbook. That would be awesome. I'll go eat the food for that cookbook research. But I, I think Southern Italy is more my more where I. Uh, like my soul associates like how I live my life. What about like an, I was just like a cannelly cookbook, a cannelly cookbook, cannelly cookbook. I could do a cannelly cookbook. Right. It would be three pages long. It would just be our recipe. Love it. Uh, and, and that would be it. New models. Akira, thank you so much for joining the taste You're, podcast. Thank you. We're joined by Max Felkowitz, producer of Taste Food Questions, which appears on the Taste Daily podcast feed. Listener, you should subscribe to this feed because, you know, Max, it's a, it's a great thing. Taste Food Questions, right? It is a great thing. It's, it's, it's everything that you ever wanted to know that you didn't realize you needed to know. And I have actually a question for you right now. What exactly is sea urchin, which is oftentimes referred to as uni if you're ordering at a Japanese restaurant. So I'm, I'm really sorry if this ruins sea urchin for you for the rest of your life, because um, sea urchin anatomy is kind of fascinating. It, it has what biologists call five-point symmetry, which like sea stars or uh, certain other like deep-sea marine life, um, there are five little um, five little petals that, it, that, it, that, that consist of the actual 
lobes of uni inside. Uh, we often call uni sea urchin rho. Um, it's not rho. It's it's the urchin's gonads. Um, it's it's analogous to um, to their ovaries or testes, and um, they're right next to the urchin's mouth, which is on the bottom of the on the bottom of the creature. It has these five little tendrils that it uses to like scrape itself across the ocean floor. And then when you pick it up to scoop out all those. Um, N- nads. All those nads. You're picking it up by its butt because it poops out of the top of its shell. <laughs> but we prize this food. Come on. Anyone who's listened has had uni. But just explain why is it such a delicacy in our world? Well, it's 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 that perfect uh, blending of of rare and challenging but rewarding flavors, right? So it, it's it's uh, urchins are filter feeders. They're eating whatever comes through the ocean floor. And so it picks up all these incredible briny mineral flavors of the ocean. And it also has, like most gonads, a lot of fatty tissue. So it's a really soft, creamy, uh, delicious, oyster-like uh, delicacy. And the, 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 the best sea urchin you'll ever eat is... Uh, procured by people who are still free diving for it, and there are some amazing women on Jeju Island who, like, are in their forties, fifties, and sixties, who just go free diving um, for urchin every day, and that's just what they do. And in America, Santa Barbara is a kind of epic uh, epicenter for epic and epicenter, if, if you will, uh, for sea urchin. Also, Hokkaido in Japan. What about the color? I think the color is something that I've seen really dark hued urchin, and then it kind of swings more towards the middle of the road orange. Well, so there's different uh, there's different varieties of urchin, and actually the one in Santa Barbara is an invasive species. So uh-huh. it actually you're doing like economic you're doing environmental good by choosing to eat it. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't. I'm not exactly sure that much about the. So I, I know that I know that different colors correspond to different varieties of urchin, yeah. but I don't really know how much about it. I don't know if anyone knows that. I just it's just like yeah. it's, sometimes it looks bloody almost, and sometimes it looks the lobes look like they're they're like very tongue like too, right? Yeah, for, for for I mean for any urchin, you really want to judge it by by its I mean by by its freshness because they like, like any gonad once removed from any critter, it doesn't last long. So uh, you really want one that 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 feels a little like like springy and resilient when you push it in and. Um, doesn't smell like it's gone off in any way. Like they're they they're really they're like shrimp. They really go off if you let them out for like more than a couple days. Max, thanks for answering the question. Thank you. The Taste Podcast is hosted by Matt Rodbard and me, Anna Hiesel. The show is produced by Gabrielle Lewis. Studio recordings by Pat Stango. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Interviews are recorded live at Books Are Magic in Cobble Hill, Brooklyn, and at Penguin Random House Studios in Manhattan. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com. Thanks for listening.